for 10 years, from 1991 to 2001. Had the privilege of being the pastor here of, at that time, Gushigan Baptist Church. And uh, so I'm delighted to be able to be back to share together here in this congregation today, now called Providence Baptist Church. But nevertheless, as we, I said to the fellows at the door here, although there's none of the congregation left here at the present time that were here when I was here, yet at the same and, and I did, I'm delighted to hear of the new congregation the, and the, blessed, the blessings that have been falling on this particular congregation now in these times, our call is to tend the sheep that, and God's sheep. And so that's what I'm glad to be able to do. And whether it's called by one name or called by another name, nevertheless, it's all, it's Christ's church. And we rejoice in the precious privilege of being able to come and share together with you today. Let's pray. And now, Heavenly Father, in Jesus, our Savior's name, we bow before you with thanksgiving and with gratitude. Lord, everything that we have, everything we are, everything we ever hope to be is all rooted in you. Dear Heavenly Father, as the songs that we sang this morning have pointed out, this life has been a life for Christians moving from being separated from you to being united with you forever. And we're so thankful, Heavenly Father, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life for us. We thank you that you rose again from the dead. We thank you that you're alive forevermore. We thank you that you're on the throne of heaven. And we thank you that you're coming back again to receive us to yourself. And then to welcome us into your eternal kingdom that will last forever in your presence. What a joy it is, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, to give thanks to you and give praise to you and give worship and honor. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for this congregation today. Thank you for Pastor John as he leads this congregation. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for that which I hear has been happening. New families coming, new lives being changed and brought to Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Heavenly Father, for all your mercy to us. And we thank you, Father. I thank you for the 10 years that my wife and I had the privilege of being here in this particular congregation. And now we thank you for the opportunity to come today and to rejoice together with our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ and to preach your word. And so, Father in heaven, I pray that your word will carry its power that is eternal and life-changing. And by the grace of God, I pray that we will hear what you have to say to us today in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to 
walk away from it for a period of time and, and give you some other material altogether and then get back to it as we follow it through in terms of its implications this morning. What shall we say then? Oh, it's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we, we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives... He lives to God. Years ago, after I was a, had become a believer myself, but before I had entered into ministry, my older brother went to an evangelistic service. Now, we were raised in the United Church. We were church-going people. My family was and still is in a lot of ways. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, was not taught or emphasized. And so my brother, my older brother, went one time to an evangelistic service. And he came back and he said to me, Alan, I almost went forward to receive Jesus last night. And I said, Gordon, why didn't you? And he said, nah, it wouldn't work. He said, the first time a cow stepped on my foot, he said, I'd get so angry and I'd lose it all and it would all be wasted. It wouldn't work. You see, my brother didn't understand the same way as so many people today don't understand how one becomes a Christian or what happens when we become a Christian. Perhaps there's someone here today who may not, may have the same problem. It's always possible. Perhaps there's someone here today who has been afraid to ask Jesus into your life. Because perhaps, like my brother, you feared that you couldn't live it. 
This Christian life was beyond you. You didn't think you would ever be able to live according to what the Word of God required of you. Or perhaps there's someone here today who has prayed to receive Christ, but then has become discouraged because you've sinned again. Perhaps you've gotten convicted and recommitted your life to Christ, but soon fallen into sin again. And you've come to feel that the Christian life is utterly impossible and that you will never be able to live as a Christian. You've tried to live the Christian life and you feel like the worst kind of failure. Now, if such should be the case for anybody here, my goal today is to try to help you. I want to try to help you this morning because the problem is with so many people, they don't understand how to become a Christian and then they don't really understand how one remains a Christian or how one can sustain one's life as a Christian. The problem, you see, is that people have never understood the part that God plays in bringing us to faith in Christ and then in keeping us in the Christian life. So that's why the book of Romans goes to such great lengths to show us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To show us that no one is righteous in God's sight. That's why it shows us that every person is under God's judgment. That's why it so shows so clearly that being good or keeping the law or doing the best that we can will never get us to heaven. And that's why it shows us that it's not what we have done, but it's what Christ has done that makes all the difference. That's why the scriptures show us that it's through the drawing us to faith in Christ that God is able to forgive us and to declare us righteous in his sight. The great exchange, he places our sin upon Christ and he credits us with Christ's perfect righteousness as though we were as pure and as sinless as he is. I want to review with you this morning. You see, in trying to help a person to understand what, how to become a Christian and how to even live as a Christian, it's important that we that we really understand what this whole process is about. Now, the songs that we sang this morning, In Christ Alone, and the other songs that we sang, have already given the message very clearly. So I'm not here to give you anything new. I'm just here to reiterate and to explain that which you already know and that which you have sung and that which you have rehearsed many times. Let's go back for a moment to those days where, like my brother, you had not yet trusted your life to Christ. But you were convicted of your sin. After my mother and I began, left the, well, we didn't fully leave the United Church, but we began attending the Brethren Assembly in our little community. 
And I was so attracted to the, the preacher that was the preacher there who preached from his heart and he preached from the word of God and he, he preached consecutively through the word as I suspect that your pastor here does. And as I have tried to do over the years. And so I came Sunday morning and I would hear, well, I didn't get there Sunday morning. We were still going to the United Church Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, but in the evening. I would come there and the pastor would open the book and he would preach from here to here to here to here just expounding and opening up and explaining what those verses meant. And you knew full well that when I came back next Sunday night, he was going to pick up from where he left off last Sunday night and he would go on for another few verses and he would explain that. And so he was laying a foundation for faith. And it convicted me. He never opened the word of God, but what it convicted me. I knew full well that I wasn't living that way. Didn't matter what passage he was preaching from. The Holy Spirit knew what my needs were. He knew what my sins were. And so every time the pastor opened the book, no matter what verses it was from, he the Holy Spirit would take those verses and he would reach into my life and he'd put his finger on my problem and convict me of it. And I would fight against doing anything about it. I fought for about two years against doing anything about it. Anybody here have that kind of experience? No? Well, I'm glad to tell you that I did. You see, it's not enough to be convicted of sin. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Convicting, being convicted of sin is not enough, my friends. It sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? It is hopeless. Unless we read on. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 goes on, but God, oh, I like that, but God. You see, that's the secret of everything. It's, it's not, it's not Al Hearn, it's not you put your name in. It's but God. But God's done it. That's what we've got to get through our heads and into our hearts. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, ah, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, in mercy, God led us to repent of our sins. Having convicted us, now at last God leads us by his word to repent. That is, to confess our sins, to agree with God as to the nature of our sins, about the seriousness of our condition. He leads us to turn to him in faith, trusting the Lord Jesus as our only hope. As we look to Jesus alone, we are forgiven. We receive the gift of faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You see, there's not one of us here who was able to crank up our faith in order to believe in God or in Jesus. We tried, but we're unsuccessful. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. That's, that's what we tried to do. We tried to earn it. We tried to, we tried to live it. We tried to get it. We tried every which way. Not of works lest anyone should boast. If we could have earned our salvation by what we could do, then my goodness, wouldn't we be pretty good people? Uh-uh. God won't share his glory with anybody. Not even a repentant sinner. He moves upon us and changes our will so that we no longer will or desire or want to do wrong. And we receive new life. You all can say with me, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here's the bottom secret, line secret of it all. The Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart and your life. You see, this is your new life. And without it, without the Holy Spirit living in your life, you're still dead in your sins and you're still separated from God and you're still without hope. When a baby is born... I don't know if they still pick up a baby by the feet and slap it on the backside so that it cries or not. I, maybe it just does that automatically. I don't know what they do anymore. But when you hear that cry, and you know that there's life there, it's the sweetest sound that a mother could hear. Right? And a dad, too. And you see, when the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart and your life, it's called a quickening, which is exactly the same thing. It's, it's that quickening. It's that 
giving of life into your very being. It's like, and leading you to cry out. It's the sweetest, your cry out is the sweetest sound that God ever hears. It's the sweetest sound that your fellow believer ever hears. When I finally yielded my life to the Lord Jesus, I didn't have any great feelings about it. I didn't, and I, you know, some people claim, oh yes, when you accept Jesus, boy, it's going to be... Hey, I accepted the Lord Jesus at last on my own, and I didn't feel any great something, you know? And so I really wondered if maybe, maybe either I'd made a mistake or somebody else had lied to me and they didn't tell me the truth about this matter of, of what happens when a person accepts Jesus. Fortunately, I went to the pastor and told him what I thought had happened. And, you know, I said that the cry of a baby is the sweetest sound that a mother has ever heard when I told him that I thought I had accepted the Lord as my... What? Oh, he got so excited. Oh, he glowed like a light bulb. My, oh, my, oh, my. And I looked at him and thought, what's... How come I don't feel that? <laughs> and then I met another fellow from the congregation who had been told that I had accepted the Lord Jesus and he glowed like a light bulb and I... What's wrong with me? But it was as the Word of God began to get into my heart from that Sunday on. As I began to hear the Word of God, and the Word of God began to, con to comfort me instead of just convict me. That I knew that things were different. I knew that I had received eternal life. And that this life was in His Son. You see... This quickening or making spiritually alive by the power of the Holy Spirit is not a process, but an instantaneous change which affects every part of our being. The Bible says we are cleansed in God's sight. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Tell me, dear ones, are you less conscious of your sin since you became a Christian or more conscious of your sin? How many would say you're more conscious of your sin now than you used to be? Exactly. That's the case. At that point, we are adopted into God's family. Our pastor and his wife in Kamloops were unable to have children. So they had two adopted children and they decided they'd like a little boy. They had two little girls and they'd like a little boy and so they began the process. Long extended process. They weren't sure what these results would be but at last a lovely little boy was released into their care. That little boy was adopted into their family. No little child could ever be more loved than those three adopted children in, in that family. And no one can be more loved than the person who is adopted into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, isn't it wonderful to have a real father to whom you may bring all of your hurts and your temptations and your trials? Now, when we were received Christ, we were justified. That's a big word. Uh, you've heard it broken down before that the word justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God treats us, just as if I'd never sinned. We are justified, which is a one-time act of God by which he credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being now just, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You notice it says we were justified by faith. And it says that we are justified by his blood. See, it's all of him. It's his work. Now the lifelong work of the Spirit really begins. For having declared us to be forgiven or justified or declared righteous, God begins the transformation process to change us from the self-centered people we wear into the Christ-centered people that he has designed us to be. This process is called not justification, but sanctification. I'm just reviewing stuff that all of you know, at least I'm, I'm expecting that all of you know. The word sanctified comes from the word sanctus, which means holy. John chapter 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And again, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Anybody called you Saint Luke? No? Well, they should. Because if you belong to Jesus... called to be saints who in all, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So how are we to describe this whole process by which God calls us to himself and changes us to be more like our Savior? Well, we call it conversion. You all know what conversion is, don't you? We convert one thing into another, Celsius into Fahrenheit, kilometers into miles, or miles into kilometers. Well, we were converted. It's called conversion because we were converted or changed. It's called redemption, because coming from the word redeemed, because Christ has purchased us or redeemed us or bought us back with his own blood. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but from your aimless conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's how we were purchased or bought back out of the sin pit. It's called Reconciliation. You know what it's like to be reconciled? Um, my wife and I had the privilege 
of seeing a man come to Christ in one of our churches who had been separated from his wife for nine years. They had not divorced. Neither one had married again. But, and they, they co-parented their children, but they were separated. And he came and he accepted Jesus as his savior and his wife, his, his former wife saw such change in him that she began asking, why? What did that? And so she began attending the church as well and it wasn't too long before she accepted the Lord Jesus and they became reconciled to one another. And now I, I said they hadn't, they hadn't been divorced. Yes, they were, had been divorced. And so I had the privilege of remarrying that couple. See, they were reconciled and then remarried. And so we who are separated from God by our sin are reconciled, married to It's called reconciliation. If we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's called a big word, propitiation. To propitiate something is to... Somebody's angry with us. And we... Well, let's put it husband and wife, okay? So... The wife is angry with the husband because the husband has done something. And so he comes back and he confesses that he did something wrong. And he brings flowers and he brings candy and he asks her forgiveness. And lo and behold, he propitiates her. He is brought back into favor with her. And it's called propitiation because now we have peace with God. My little children, these things I write unto you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for this whole world. You see, we were alienated from God and Jesus Christ went to the Father and he propitiated the wrath of the Father through his own shed blood on our behalf. And God then received us and he was propitiated by the work of his son. Now, can you see then that this is all God's work and not your work? And that the way you became a Christian is that you simply responded to God's grace and mercy. It wasn't something you earned. It wasn't something you've, you, you did for yourself. You received his grace and mercy. And when all of that happened, at the moment in which you asked Jesus into your life, you became a Christian in that sense of the word, that full sense of the word. Now, if, you're, if there's anybody here that's not sure that that has actually happened to you, 
My friends, you can ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you and come into your life right now where you're sitting. But now the big question comes, and I said I'd get back to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, and this is where I want to get back to. Because the big question now is, well, how do I live as a Christian for the rest of my life? You see, once you have actually been saved, converted, born again, changed, the work of the Holy Spirit, he comes into your life and begins to make real in you what God has already declared to be true of you. You see, you can't live the Christian life by your, on your own or by your own works, or by your own goodness, or anything else, any more than you can become a Christian on your own. When you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, to transform your thinking, and your attitudes, and your lifestyle. He changes you from the inside out. That's what's problem with the, all of the, the social work that's being done these days. It's not to speak ill of psychiatrists, or psychologists. That's not my point at all. But the problem is that folks working in those departments can only work from the outside in. They try to change a person's life from the outside. Can't be done, really. God doesn't start from the outside. He starts from the inside. It's important for Christians to recognize the difference between the one-time work of grace by which we are brought to trust Christ and the ongoing process of grace, which leads us to live a Christian life from the point of salvation until we are glorified with God in heaven. So the first change that we should see is a change of attitude towards sin. So here in Romans chapters, now you can take a look at Romans 6, 1 to 10, and I'll follow it through for, for just for a few moments. So verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, there's got to be a change of attitude towards sin. How can we keep on living in the way that once was fitting us for hell? Certainly not, he says. How shall we who died to sin? I want you to notice that this speaks of death towards sin as something that happened to every true believer. Now, you may not feel that you died towards sin. You may be very conscious, as I said. How many are more conscious now than you used to be? Well, every one of us, I think. And yet he speaks about every one of us as having died to sin as though it's a living reality in our lives, whether we feel it or we don't. Death to sin does not mean that it's impossible to commit sin any longer, but it does mean that it's impossible to keep on living in sin, living a life that is dominated by sin. I'm always confused when I see Christians that turn away from Christ and yet and, and live 
again in an old sinful way and yet assure me that, oh no, I'm saved, I'm saved. How come your life doesn't show that you're saved? You see, there's something wrong there. There should be a change of attitude towards sin whereby sin becomes abominable to us. Hateful to us. Well, the reason for this change is our union with Christ. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit placed you into a brand new relationship with Jesus. And when he took his resurrected body back to heaven, he left behind his followers. And they became his body on earth. And it's through them, the church, that he carries out his will on earth today, here on this earth. When you became a believer, you were added to that body, into his body, to do what he wants done. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Verse 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And that's the challenge for every one of us as believers. We're to walk in newness of life. In ourselves, it's just as impossible as it was beforehand. But it's not impossible with Christ as our Savior and with the Holy Spirit living within our very being. That's why verses 3 and 4 speaks about, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You see, there's the spiritual baptism which places us in Christ. And then from this point, we want to walk on in newness of life. Then to show the fact that we belong to Jesus, we are baptized in water. Water baptism doesn't save anybody. I'm sure your pastor has told you that. But it's the outward sign of the inward change. By water baptism, we let others know that we have become a Christian and want to, be, want to live for Jesus. Ideally, water baptism should take place as near to the time when we became a Christian as possible. However, if that didn't happen, it's still right to be baptized no matter how long it's been since you trusted in Jesus. My third point, then, is that the Christian life is a life of identification with Jesus. When a couple are married, the husband and wife identify with each other. And she identifies with her husband by usually taking his name. Doesn't always happen these days. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with Christ together in the likeness of death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. When Christ came to earth, he identified himself with us. When he died in our place, he identified with us by taking our sins upon himself. When he rose from the dead, he identified himself showing that with us, showing that our sin has been paid for once and for all. And so now our life is a life of identifying ourselves with him. You shouldn't be ashamed to be known as a Christian. You shouldn't be afraid to let people know that your life is different because of your faith in Christ. You should openly show that you are no longer a slave of sin and that you are living according to a new principle. Like the business who puts up a sign declaring that there's new owners, you should let it be known that you are under new management. Identifying yourself with Christ. And the fourth thing, the Christian life is a life with a new expectation. He says in verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the sin, death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives... He lives to God. From the moment you first trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have a wholly new attitude towards life and towards death. Death loses its fearsomeness because we believe with all our hearts that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We believe that the moment that we die, we enter into heaven and into the presence of Jesus, our Savior. Oh, we don't know when that'll be. We don't know what it'll be like. I said to my wife again, just over supper last night, I think. I still have no idea what heaven will be like. I know it'll be wonderful beyond anything that we can imagine. But it's impossible for us while we're still here to begin to understand what heaven will be like. But we believe it'll be a far better life than we can ever experience here. And so we actually become eager to enter into that glorious land. We're going to be with Jesus. And the words are, Hallelujah! And that's why we can visit a Christian who is close to death with calmness and with assurance. We can read the word of God with them. We can pray with them in confidence. We can rejoice with them in the fact that they're soon going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my conclusions, how do we live as a Christian then? We live in conscious dependence upon the Lord, knowing that he's working in our lives that which is according to his will. This is called the doctrine of sanctification by which the Holy Spirit begins the process of making us holy and righteous in His sight. It's a process. It's a lifelong process. It's not an instantaneous thing. Every day of our lives, we're in the process of being drawn closer to Jesus. 
This is called the doctrine of sanctification. It is a lifelong work of sanctification by which the Holy Spirit weans us away from our sinfulness and leads us to desire and to love holiness. Because of the progressive nature of sanctification, we shall never be completely sanctified or completely holy until that day when we at last enter His presence in heaven. Do you get the picture? Let me just kind of review. Salvation is not our work. It is God's work. It is God at work in us. First and last he brings us to faith. He saves us from the penalty of our sin. His Holy Spirit works in our heart to overcome the power of sin. And one day he will deliver us entirely from the presence of sin. That's what my brother didn't understand all those years ago. When he said, oh, it wouldn't have done any good, Al. First time a cow stepped on my foot, I'd get mad. And... He didn't understand that if he yielded his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would not be Gordon Hearn holding on to Jesus with his fingernails and hoping he somehow wouldn't slip or fall. There's not a person in this room that's capable of holding on to Jesus, fingernails or whole hands or anything else. Left to ourselves, down we go. So if it's not God's work, if it's not God at work in us, then, like my brother, don't become a Christian. But if it's God's work, and if you know it's God's work, then there's a certain sense in which you can rest. You don't have to be fighting all the time to try to, try to stay right with God. You have to stay right with God, but it's Him that keeps convicting us and making us aware of our need and drawing us to trust Him again and again and again and again and again, all the way home to glory. It's His work. And that's why the end result is to His praise and glory. Not us that we're going to get the credit. We don't deserve the credit. All glory, all honor, all praise, all worship be to Jesus Christ who did it all. Amen.